Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. According to conventional wisdom, Washington is a one-crisis city, unable to effectively handle two major problems simultaneously. Perhaps this applies to the ongoing Iranian nuclear effort, when the Biden administration is almost totally focused on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The Vienna talks have been dragging on with no reported breakthrough, and the Iranians are slowly but systematically enriching uranium to the fairly high level of 60%. If there is any overlap between the Ukraine crisis and the Iran negotiations, it has to do with news of an offer made by Washington via Moscow and outright rejected by Tehran regarding an immediate agreement. So where are the parties to the Vienna talks headed? With us to explore it from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Oli Heinonen, who is the former Deputy Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency and a Distinguished Fellow at the Stimson Center at Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. Also joining us from elsewhere in central Israel is Mr. Meir Javed Anfa, who is an Iran lecturer at Reichman University. Thank you for joining us as well, sir. Thank you for having me. Indeed, and uh, with us here in the studio is our TV7 editor-at-large and host of Watchmen Talk, Powers in Play, and many others, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader understanding on the latest developments regarding this uh, ongoing diplomatic process that for several weeks now has been already in its eighth, eighth round and has yet to conclude, so it seems. So uh, were you to ask uh, Joe Biden uh, who of all of your opposite numbers is of most concern uh, to you right now, he wouldn't uh, choose Ali Khamenei. He would obviously say Vladimir Putin. And Iran is an ongoing concern, but not urgent. Um, there is still time. Uh, it can be measured in several weeks or um, in uh, very few months, but it doesn't have to be resolved today or this week. And this is why we hear confusing reports coming out of both Vienna, Tehran, and Washington regarding uh, what is happening in the indirect talks between the United States and um, Iran within the American uh, delegation, perhaps within the uh, Iranian government too, because there were um, fairly optimistic remarks um, by the foreign minister, but then, then they were clarified or talked back. So uh, the uh, general tenor is not um, so optimistic. Uh, we are waiting to see whether for the next uh, couple of weeks there can be a decoupling of the issues. The um, Americans insist that four of their compatriots held in Iran, and they consider them hostages, be released in order for the um, uh, nuclear talks to proceed. Now, the Iranians are obviously uh, holding them because for them, the sanctions which have to do with terrorism are not related to the nuclear deal. So they want to have two deals, one regarding the so-called humanitarian or um, counter-terror 
sanctions and the other, the sanction relief regarding the nuclear deal. If uh, it can be affected, there will be a deal. They want to lengthen and strengthen a deal that has nothing to do with the nuclear file. Also. Indeed. I'd like to uh, refer the next question to Dr. Heinonen. When you look currently at the, the state of affairs in Iran's nuclear program, which this is supposed to be at least the focus of deliberations on constraining their aspirations to reach a nuclear weapon and being able to verifiably uh, provide the international community with assurances in order to prov uh, basically uh, guarantee that this is not the course of action that the Islamic Republic is undertaking. How do you regard this at this stage? Is the JCPOA a viable document to be able to provide such guarantees? And to what degree now that we see the Iranians continuing to uh, enrich uranium of 60% uh, uh, grade material, are we in a stage of, of no return or is this still several weeks as we've been hearing for the past several months? Well, it's a hard to say we don't have here all, all the facts on the table. But when I look at, you know, from what I see, the public statements, and we have not heard any alarm from the IAEA, so that the uranium enrichment proceeds as was planned. Iran has now maybe some close to 30 kilograms of 60% uranium, 60% enriched uranium, 20% enriched uranium. They probably have already passed that limit, which is enough to... Uh, manufacture enough highly enriched uranium for one single nuclear weapon. So this means that the breakout times, if we just look at the production of uh, high enriched uranium, it has come to somewhere around a few weeks, a little bit more than a month. So that is there. They have installed new centrifuges, not very many, but some before Christmas. So they probably have increased a little bit the production rate. Uh, the IAEA most likely got the uh, cameras installed to Karas facility so that there is some knowledge collected, not seen by the IAEA until the agreement is there. So that tiny problem is, is away. Then at the same time, we should not forget, Iran builds a big fabrication plant for centrifuges near Natanz. David Albright and ISIS reported a week ago some progress on that. So that is looming there. And this is one of the parts which was, in a way, forgotten from the original JCPOA. Is the infrastructure or manufacture infrastructure for the manufacturing of nuclear components it was practically left out from the monitoring, with the exception of a couple of pieces. And that's why Iran built that centrifuge assembly plant to Natanz, which was then attacked by someone and destroyed. So this kind of thing that you leave the infrastructure there, it is little like that, you know, people can dress up and they will be ready to go when the need is there. So these are things which need to be modified in the JCPOA. And the last thing I say that uh, there's a wisdom which says that don't repair anything which is not broken. I think that JCPOA is broken. So therefore, one has to be very careful with any interim solution. Because temporary solutions very often become long-time problems. 
permanent problems. Uh, Mr. Javed Anfar, I'd like to hear your uh, comment also on the technical aspect, but I'd like to raise also a comment uh, stated by Iranian Foreign Minister Hassan Amir Abdullahian earlier this week on Monday, where he stated our negotiations are reaching a point where our technical negotiations in the not-so-distant future will reach its saturation point and we must make a political decision. What does he mean by that? And to what degree are the Iranians confident at this stage, considering their unique relationship with China, the unique relationship with Russia, uh, at the backdrop of tensions with the West, tensions with the United States uh, in particular, uh, where do you see all of this situated? technical aspects of the uh, negotiations on the nuclear deal. Uh, uh, we are in a great uh, company here, expertise of Dr. Heinen. He knows far more about the technical aspects of Iran's nuclear program. I think he's the only living person I've ever met uh, virtually was actually seen an Iranian centrifuge uh, firsthand. So I will I will leave the, the, the that, that, that area of expertise to him. Uh, I, whatever he says, uh, comes from a much deeper knowledge than, than mine. In terms, I can comment politically on what's happening in Iran. Um, look, what's happening right now is, uh, first of all, um, Iran, Russia and China will not be able to uh, assist Iran uh, if, if the talks break down, and they are very likely to break down within the next month, temporarily. Um, they're not going to be able to provide Iran with much help. Yes, the Chinese buy oil from Iran, but apparently the price which they pay, uh, according to Iranian uh, officials also, is, is much lower than the, the market price. And it's not enough to meet the, uh, the uh, necessary economic necessities of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, in terms of Russia, Mr. Raisi had a not very successful visit to Moscow. Uh, I'm sure he didn't expect to arrive there and to be met halfway across, across the room by uh, by President Putin, who uh, you know sat across a very long table on the other side. Uh, he was apparently chewing gum while he was talking to uh, President Raisi, and uh, he looked bored and tapping his feet. So uh, Iranian opposition and also Iranian reformists had a great time with that in terms of. Uh, uh, pointing these facts out to 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 the conservatives, and also Mr. Raisi did not come out with any agreement uh, from the Russians. At the same time, there is a new development in Syria, which uh, I'm not sure it's related, but we must we in Israel must take into consideration, and that is uh, uh, the oh, the Russian air force now flying across our uh, and, uh, sorry uh, on the Syrian side of the border with this with Syrian jets on the Golan recently. What kind of a message is that to the state of Israel? Because this is something new. And is it related to the <clears throat> Iran issue? So this is something that we have to take into consideration. But that's more uh, regarding Syria. Uh, on Israel, I think our concern is going to be um, considering, in my estimate, that it's probably more than 75% likelihood that the talks are not going to get anywhere by February. And there's going to be a temporary halt what is Iran going to do and what should we do? And I think this we are entering an area of, of uh, possible escalations. And within the context of what's happening in Ukraine, I think uh, this is something that's going to require a lot of attention, uh, especially from the state of Israel.
I think that, uh, uh, Mr. Oren, how about you go ahead and calm the spirits of all our viewers and, and uh, people around the world with regard to the Syrian front and, and uh, uh, deconfliction mechanism that uh, Israel with, has with Russia? Well, you know, uh, people always go back to um, April, uh, May, June of uh, 1970 and what happened over the Suez Canal when Israeli uh, Air Force pilots uh, uh, shot down five uh, Soviet-piloted Egyptian planes. Uh, the same uh, MiGs uh, in Egyptian uh, Air Force uh, markings. But this is not what is happening um, over the uh, Syrian side of the Golan Heights. This is not the Israeli held uh, Golan Heights. What is happening there is probably a signal by the uh, Russians, both to the Americans in the Ukraine, in the Ukraine front, and to the Iranians, listen, guys, in Syria, we are calling the shots. If there is one superpower in Syria now militarily, it is Russia. The Russians are telling the Syrians where and when they can fly. And they are telling the Iranians, you don't have any air force here. At most, you have some drones, you have some missiles. But uh, when we decide that it's your time to go home, we'll let you know. Indeed. With regard to uh, the uh, current constraints, if you will, with regard to the nuclear talks in uh, Vienna, uh, there is talk about uh, the uh, talks collapsing altogether in light of different remarks made, uh, including by uh, the, the special envoy of the United States to the talks, uh, Robert Malley, who, who in an interview earlier this week spoke about specifically uh, the uh, four Americans being held hostage by Iran, uh, which is uh, also being negotiated currently in Vienna on a sidetrack, a track to uh, uh, kind of indirect also. Uh, he, he did emphasize that also, but uh, capacity. Is there now a situation in which we see the Iranians backing down? And how is this going to impact the nuclear process? Uh, because ultimately, Iran holding a nuclear weapon, uh, and with the technical terms that uh, Dr. Heinonen has mentioned in layman's terms, it is quite near this breakout point of being able to manufacture a nuclear warhead. Well, according to the Israeli military intelligence um, chiefs, uh, uh, Iran is... One of them. No, no, even, even uh, General Khalifa, who took over from, from General Tamir Hayman, um, they keep saying that uh, Iran has not yet made a decision uh, to uh, produce uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, when it does, if it does, it will take it two years uh, to reach there. But um, leaving that aside and going back to your question about the hostages, uh, for powers, individuals uh, do not really count. But for public relations and politics, they are very important, even though it's a peripheral issue. <clears throat> and we remember uh, President Trump uh, priding himself on bringing Father Bronson home from Turkey and uh, the bodies of Americans missing in action in the Korean War um, almost 70 uh, years uh, earlier because he wanted to show uh, some achievements. So perhaps uh, the Biden administration is laying the ground 
for saying, well, maybe we uh, did concede a lot, perhaps more than we intended to in the um, nuclear talks with Iran. But look, we got back our four guys. They will have a White House ceremony. The um, uh, media will focus on them. Um, and by the way, it also happened uh, in the Israeli-Turkish relationship with the uh, couple uh, held by, by the Turks um, and then released, which was one way to uh, demonstrate a thaw in relations. So while it is not a very important issue in the greater scheme of things, it may be um, a sort of an indicator that things are finally moving in the right direction, slowly, but perhaps they will get there. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Heinonen, I'd like to ask you something that I've been uh, uh, receiving a lot of emails about and uh, from our viewers and people uh, from all over the world uh, regarding the relations between the Islamic Republic of Iran and North Korea. Uh, the fact of the matter is you've held both files within the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, and you've had the opportunity to uh, quite keenly uh, evaluate both areas of, of uh, research. Uh, do you see this relationship fester into something more uh, at a stage where scrutiny is precarious at most in Iran as well as in uh, the DPRK, and at the same time, we see an additional uh, cooperation, if you will, uh, including during the inauguration of Ibrahim Raisi and the new government in Tehran, uh, trying to cement closer relations between those two rogue nations. Thank you. If we go back to the history very briefly. So this cooperation started basically through the missile exchange because Iran needed after the Iran-Iraq war or at the time of Iraq-Iran war and in 1980s and 1990s access to missile technology. And I think that this was pretty much that until we entered to 20, to year 2000, 2002, when Iran launched its AMAD process, which was, which was also the development of nuclear weapon or design of nuclear weapon at least, plus also some uh, modifications to the existing missile which they had got from uh, North Korea and then they made the first crude re-entry vehicle design for nuclear weapon for uh, Sahab 3 missile. What has happened after that with that missile and the nuclear capabilities of that missile, we really don't know. The only thing we know that they have much more modern model of this uh, missile, so one could assume that they have also looked for the re-entry vehicle. Have they worked together with North Koreans? That's a good question. At the same time, when you look, there are two things which have changed in the picture. Uh, one is this axis of resistance. So there is now also a political dimension in a cooperation between Iran and uh, North Korea with against the common enemy, which is our US. That's one there, and it's increasingly in their um, exchange of views and meetings, which has taken in the uh, last decade or so. So there's a political dimension. But in early 2000s, there was one fundamental change in this cooperation, and they added to their memorandum understandings, an item which is called scientific cooperation. And that's a very interesting aspect on this because they don't define what is the science here. Is it 
let's say, IT, biology, agriculture, military related. And to that extent, or to this particular, I want to point to the inauguration of uh, uh, President Rouhani for the first time. When they had these meetings in, in Iran, the Minister of the Atomic Energy Organization or Vice President was actually in meetings with uh, North Korean counterpart. And the other two persons who were in this meeting, surprisingly not Mr. Saleh, who was the foreign minister, minister was in that meeting, but was Apasidavani, Daneshio, and one other person, and they all were part of this original nuclear weapons effort. So it's interesting that they come to this scientific meeting with their North Korean counterparts. And what happened after that in this science, there are bits and pieces, but there's no hard evidence on nuclear cooperation that you can point. Then you can look the developments in the missile technology, uh, solid fuel for missiles, etc., and the problems which they had nuclear building a nuclear test site, uranium enrichment. Uh, Iran has a shortage of uranium. So there are a lot of things which could make sense for some kind of uh, more than just simple scientific exchange, but no hard evidence which you can pinpoint. Indeed, Mr. Javedanfav, uh, I'd like to hear your your perspective from a political standpoint. To what degree are the Iranians at this stage, considering all the um, various components or factors uh, being weighed within the constellation of the current reality, uh, eager to uh, procure or produce a, a single nuclear bomb? Uh, and to what degree do you see them actually uh, withdraw from the nuclear deal if they do not actually receive what they demand from uh, the P5 plus 1, even though they uh, keep uh, highlighting that it's only the P4 plus 1 that they're dealing with? Look, I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's at least 75% chance that by mid-February the talks are going to break down. I don't think it's the end of talks. Um, I think the two sides will come back to the negotiation table again. Um, but uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran is not backing down from its demand that America provides guarantees that it will not break the deal again. Uh, on the one hand, logically, you could say Iran has that right to do so, that right to ask for such a, to make such a demand because Trump walked away from the nuclear deal unilaterally and without Iran breaking the deal. But the other, on the other side of the, the coin, you know, the Americans cannot provide such a guarantee to Iran because it's uh, in, America is a democratic country. President Biden could give guarantees verbally that he's not going to walk out of the nuclear deal. He could even probably give written guarantees. But if the people of America in democratic elections uh, elect the president, who the next president, who is going to be, who has an anti-nuclear deal line with Iran, then if he's elected, he's going to carry out his promises. And this, this is not something that Biden can can uh, can uh, guarantee that will not happen. And he has no right to give such a guarantee. So this is the way, this is the situation where we are. Um, and I think um, most probably, you know, once we walk, when, once the talks break down, then the both, both sides are going to uh, try to increase the leverage. I think it's quite possible that Iran will try to advance its nuclear program, but I don't think it will make a nuclear weapon. 
Uh, I think they will <clears throat> increase pr probably um, the level of enrichment. I mean, uh, I, I think no likelihood they'll stay at 60%, but increase the, the quantity of enriched uranium at 60%. But they will be careful not to make a nuclear weapon. Why? Uh, because they know that the Russians and the Chinese do not want a nuclear Iraq. We have to remember that the Chinese, as much as they are uh, allies of Iran, or at least the hardliners would like to see them as an ally, as their ally, the Chinese have a very much an interest in balance of power within the region. And the Iranians found this out recently after it turned out that the Chinese were secretly helping Saudi Arabia uh, build missile factories, missiles that would only have one target apart from Yemen. It's most probably going to be Iran. And the Iranians realized that. And um, the Chinese, in order to make sure that the Saudis and other countries don't have nuclear weapons or don't ask them in the future for nuclear assistance, don't want Iran to become nuclear state. And this is something that the Russians also don't want to happen. So I think in terms of Iran becoming a nuclear state, although the likelihood of the talks breaking down in February are very high, I would say the likelihood that Iran will make a nuclear weapon from the breakdown of the talks probably mid-February until they are resumed six months or a year after that, I don't know. I think the likelihood that Iran will make a nuclear weapon is very low. Indeed. Dr. Heinonen, we have less than a minute left uh, uh, for a comment from you. I'd like to hear your focus. What uh, do you think we should all look at in the next intermediate uh, short-term uh, period with regard to the prospects of Iran uh, pushing through and, and making that political decision? I agree with Mayor that they probably won't do it, but you can do a lot in terms of the components. Produce high-enriched uranium, produce metal, uh, improve your infrastructure, harden it, put it underground, and start perhaps to build some spare facilities like they did in 2000 when the Fordo project started and they had those plans in 2010. So we should start to look also possible clandestine sites which are not yet put to in operation. Mr. Oren, one Can sentence. Can I just one comment? One sentence. Iran is unlikely make, to make a nuclear weapon because it will know that it will live in eternal sanctions like in North Korea. And this is not a scenario that Ayatollah Khamenei wants for Islamic Republic. And while Israel has changed its tone and is now more for a deal than against it, it should not be uh, with its back to the world because it will strike. Of course, for a deal to be able to have that breathing room to prepare for that specific strike you're speaking about. But this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Heinonen, Mr. Javed Anfal, and Mr. Owen for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.